0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
1: Six finalists vying to upgrade the National Gallery's Sainsbury Wing. Two winners announced for this year's Anti-Pavilion campaigners urge London's mayor to block Ealing Council's Town hall redevelopment and the future of nightclubs called into question My name is Merlin Fulcher I'm an architectural journalist and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news Welcome to the London my special guest this week is Amanda Bailey. Amanda is a former editor and founder of Archibu. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Our first story was covered in the AJ and across the built environment media. It's all about the shortlist to upgrade the National Gallery's grade one listed Sainsbury Wing. The six finalists are Asif Khan with AKT2, Caruso Sinjin with Muff Architecture Art, David Chipperfield Architects, David Cohn Architects, New York's Seldorf Architects with Purcell, and Witherford Watson man. The search organized by Malcolm Reading Consultants will select a multidisciplinary team to vastly improve the welcome experience at the landmark building overlooking Trafalgar Square, which was completed by Robert Venturi, Denise Scott Brown and Associates in 1991 and serves as the gallery's main entrance. The phased 25 to 30 million pound project Time to Mark the Gallery's Bicentenary in 2024 will remodel the Sainsbury Wing's front gates, ground floor entrance sequence, lobby and first floor spaces. It will also create a research centre within the nearby West Wing of the Wilkins Building and deliver a series of public realm upgrades to to enhance the Gallery's presence in Trafalgar Square. It also comes 37 years after ABK Architect's original contest-winning proposal for the extension was ditched after Prince Charles, who is a royal patron of the museum, labelled it a monstrous carbuncle. Robert Venturi, Denise Scott-Brown and associates won a separate contest with a revised brief for the project, renamed the Sainsbury Wing, a year later in 1985. An overall winner of the latest commission will be announced in July. So, Amanda, what's this all about? What do you think of the shortlist, which includes three Sterling Prize winners?
0: Yeah, it's a good shortlist. Um, I mean, nobody sort of jumps out for being untested or unknown, which isn't really surprising because it's quite a tricky project. You're working with a grade one listed building bang in the middle of central London. But, I mean, for me personally, who jumps out? I mean, I think they're all you know they've all got interesting things about them, but the teams that I'm more interest personally more interested in are the ones that have got some strong landscape architects in tow, so David Cohn with Todd Longstaff, and Seldorf with Voigt because I think the public aspect um of this is gonna be. know really important
1: so obviously 37 years ago the original abk architects proposal for this modernist extension it was famously slammed by the prince of wales in his riba speech and this opportunity was then turned over to robert venturi denise scott brown associates who came up with a much more postmodern building with traditional references in it as a piece of architecture Um, you know at the time this sparked a huge debate between architectural modernists and traditionalists I'd be interested to hear your take on this and also whether or not you think this backstory is particularly relevant to the latest competition today.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you said, it was 37 years ago. I think those arguments are kind of over. I think I, I think people might be a bit surprised that a building that's only 30 years old actually needs fixing uh, to this degree. But you know, it wasn't designed to handle six million visitors a year. It was designed to handle half of that. And, you know, plus the fact that museums and galleries all now need massive incomes to survive. So, you know, a lot of the project is about a bigger, bigger, a bigger shop and a bigger restaurant. So I don't think people are going to sort of object to the scheme in, in the same way. But I think... You know, there's one really big difference between the competitions, isn't there? Because, you know, the Venturi Scott Brown competition, the, the one that, you know, with all the controversy, those were designs. I mean, every, everyone on the shortlist, I can't remember the entire shortlist, but, you know, they had to produce designs and, and everybody could pour over them, including, obviously, architects and, and uh, Prince Charles. This isn't how this competition's going to be run. They're not being asked for a design concept. They're going to be chosen after a series of workshops. So, you know, it's a very different kind of competition. It's, it's non competitive as non competitive as a, an architectural competition can ever be.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when you, we, we think about uh, the brief itself and the, the nature of what the changes to the building will be as well... Um, I mean, is it fair to say that what's being proposed here um, and is something where the, 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 the current state of play of contemporary architecture means that we're unlikely to see any fresh controversy uh, in a massive sense uh, erupt over these new buildings?
0: I mean, the, the, the building is grade one listed, so everybody knows what that means. Um, the main bulk of the work is about changing the foyer and getting rid of the bookshop and the restaurant. And I, you know, I can't see how that is controversial. I think there is obviously this important bit about the public realm and what you do at the, you know, the front of the building facing Trafalgar Square. And you know, I think that's why you need some really good landscape architects and some really sort of, you know, some really good ideas going on there. But I mean, we are only going to get to see one scheme. So, I mean, I'm not saying that you know, somebody isn't going to dislike it and there won't be a piece in, you know, the AJ or kind of slagging it off. That always happens. But... It's just not going to hit the headlines in the same way.
1: Okay, and on that point, I mean, it's interesting to note that some of the shortlisted teams are quite frankly massive. So, for example, if you look at the Asif Khan team, it's not just his practice, but nine other companies on the ticket. So it's Asif Khan with AKT2, Atelier 10, Bureau Veritas, Donald Insull Associates, Donald Hislop, two Donalds, Gillespie's, Joseph Henry, Kenya Hara and Plan A Consultants. So, yeah, it's definitely the longest one. And really, I mean, if you look at the state of architectural competitions, it feels like there is a bit of a, a trend right now um, that individual companies no longer really apply on their own unless they're part of these bigger kind of super group um, consortium. What's this all about?
0: I mean, I think Asif Khan has got quite a big team, hasn't he? Uh, but I like these. I think these big teams, I mean, this is what architects need to do, isn't it? They need to collaborate um, and, and, you know, look at, look at problems... Just not from the point of view of an architect. Get other people to contribute. I think it's really good.
1: So when we look at a shortlist like this, we know that it takes an enormous amount of energy and money to participate in a competition. Um, the five losing teams will almost certainly sustain some losses. You know, they're gambling on the chance of winning this job. Of course, but
0: they're not being asked for. Look, I mean, the thing that costs money is designing. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to if you're entering a competition of this. Of this importance um, and you were asked to come up with a design concept i don 't know how many you know days weeks that would take you know a practice um, to, to do it justice but you know we know that's a lot of time and we know that's expensive time they've obviously got to go away now and, and think about their approach and of course there will be a lot of work. But, but, you know, they're selecting them on the basis of, um, of workshops and interviews. So th- they're not having to spend that kind of money, the kind of money they would do if they were doing a design concept.
1: So the, the approach focusing on the workshops and the team and the design approach is, is definitely, um, you would say, a way for organisations like National Gallery and others to, um, to make sure that this, this t- the time of all the teams is used responsibly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably why it's been done like this. Um, you know, I think competitions have come in for a lot of a lot of criticism, quite rightly, because you know architects do get exploited. But you know, we're talking about the National Gallery, we're talking about an important competition, we're talking about some um, architects who um, are, are pretty experienced in their, this space. So I'm not saying that they're not going to um, spend a lot of time thinking about their approach. But, I mean, th- this is such an opportunity. Um, you know, I think it's, it's one of those ones where, you know, they're getting the £10,000. They're, they're not being asked for a design. I think this sounds like a, a good, well-run competition so far.
1: You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The London and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City Friend. Open City Friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and Friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support for more information. Our second story was covered in the AJ and relates to another competition. In this case, it's to do with Anti-Pavilion, which has named two winners in its contest for a demountable intervention at Columbia and Brunswick Wharf in Hackney, North London. The fifth Anti-Pavilion competition invited artists, architects, designers and makers to draw up radical visions for a temporary and relocatable Bartisan style hanging structure at the Hoxton Docks Complex on the Regent's Canal. This year's overall winner is a collapsible anti-chamber camera obscura by Nima Sada of Studio N. It's set to be constructed later this year using salvaged timbers from Mayak Swift Architects' dismantled Potemkin Theatre, which won the 2019 commission. The Anti Pavilion jury also selected a special additional winner dubbed All Along the Watchtower, which will be constructed as a parallel early summer temporary installation. The Tensegrity Tower concept was submitted by engineer Morgan Trowland, who, with Julian Maynard Smith, co-designed a similar intervention for the Extinction Rebellion protests outside News International's Broxbourne print Printworks in September. The latest £25,000 anti-pavilion commission backed by historic regeneration specialist Shiva, was launched in January, despite the client's ongoing legal battle with Hackney Council, which forced the removal of last year's winning scheme, a series of fibreglass sharks by architect Jamie Shorten, two months after it was installed. The council, however, failed in a similar bid to have other anti-pavilion structures removed from the site. A forthcoming court case will decide whether the shark injunction holds and a public inquiry is expected in the summer. This year's brief included the requirement that structures could be easily demounted, adapted and transported to a new location, if necessitated by the outcome of the client's legal battle. Amanda, what's this all about? The anti-pavilion competition has been running for five years now, and in that time it's grown to quite some international recognition, in some ways for its contentious challenging of building regulations, authorities and planning permissions. Do the latest winners live up to this tradition? Yeah,
0: you know, from the CGI, it looks it looks really cool, the winner. Uh, it uses recycled timber, it's demountable. I, I like the way that it uh, references fairgrounds and fun fairs that link to the area. But, it, you know, to tell you the truth, I mean, when they started, I think, because um, the Architecture Foundation was involved, which they're not anymore, which is really sad, and... I remember the first year that there was a massive party down there and you know it was like the it was a much cooler event to go to than the Serpentine Pavilion Party. Um I don't know if that if that feeling is still there, you know. I um but it's such a popular route, isn't it, now? Particularly in lockdown, we're all sort of walking all over the place and the canal is so busy that obviously it's going to be seen um, and people are going to stop and they're going to take pictures. And I don't know how much more they can interact with it.
1: I I think it's a really interesting take that the idea that what really makes pavilions in a way is the party and is the way that we we go and enjoy them. But I mean, look, taking it on its own terms in the way the anti-pavilion describes itself and certainly describes itself in this year's brief. Um, Yeah, what kind of impact do you think this commission has had on London architecture and also this debate around um, planning controls? I mean, has it raised a universal point that we need to challenge authority? We challenge the kind of arbitrary power that planners have over design and experimentation. Um, Or is this actually something much more specific to this particular site and this particular local authority?
0: Well, I mean, I, I mean, planning must be one of the most tedious subjects in the world. The point that commit the the um the client or the owner of the land is trying to make is I think what he's saying is um or what we're being asked to think about is should anyone be allowed to put up temporary pavilions or structures without any kind of planning on their land i mean that's the provocation and and you know if they're not in anyone's way or causing danger, well probably yes, you know the answer is probably yes, but should there be some sort of aesthetic control like an architect or an engineer or an artist involved yeah because I mean if there wasn't I mean you can just imagine the kind of stuff that would be going up and I think what we all like or certainly what I like about this um is that about the anti-pavilion about the the commissions is they're a bit unpredictable and they're and they're a bit messy and that's what temporary architecture should be and I think you know what's happened to these the temporary architecture or the pavilion is that they've been taken over by um, you know manufacturers and PRs and you see them at design festivals and the first thing you get when you go in is a bit of literature about the you know what the, the pavilion's made of and they're really boring and and these aren't they're kind of there's something we desperately need at the moment because they're you know they're fun and they're they're provocative and they're a bit wild, um, but I'm not wholly with this campaign that, you know, that planners are a bunch of useless bureaucrats that are stopping creativity. I don't, I don't buy that. But at the same time, I sort of like the pavilion.
1: But one of the other things that I think is quite interesting is this second uh, winner that's been chosen this year, this tensegrity structure by um, the uh, uh, activists Morgan Trowland and Julian Maynard-Smith. And the fact that a similar structure designed by them appeared in XR protest earlier in the year, it's something which Open City director Phineas Harper argued in an opinion column that... um, it was an example of the most gutsy architecture of the year and possible worthy contenders uh, of the sterling prize firstly what do you make of this new breed of super lightweight demountable activist architecture and what do you think about what it says about an increasingly politicized architectural profession
0: look i mean people on protest or rallies have always needed somewhere to sit haven't they you know, they've always needed a platform of some kind. So, I mean, architecture in that sense has always been involved in protest. You've just got those um, those bricks uh, that have been used as roadblocks in Hong Kong, winning that um, Design of the Year People's Choice prize. So, um, you know, I think uh, protest architecture is quite a well-trodden path. But because architects engage with climate activism... It's, it would be surprising if they weren't thinking about uh, protest architecture. And obviously the panel that gave um, the Extinction Rebellion structure second place it wants to make a point. And Anti-Pavilion wants to be provocative and it is political. So it's no, it's no great surprise they've given it second prize.
1: And do you think it's a worthy contender of the Sterling Prize, um, this thing that was used to, to block access to the Broxbourne printworks?
0: I mean, anything that makes the sterling prize a bit more interesting would be get my vote so yeah why not
1: our third item was covered in the aj but it's part of a wider ongoing story that's also appeared in the guardian as well as many other local news sources over the past few months it's all to do with campaigners who've called on the mayor of london Sadiq khan to block a 26-story tower development on the site of ealing council's headquarters after it was approved for a second time It follows a decision on the 31st of March by Ealing Council to again give the go-ahead for plans to demolish the brutalist Percival House, its iconic six-storey red brick headquarters in Uxbridge. Percival House will be replaced by six buildings designed by Patel Taylor, the tallest of which coming in at 26 storeys, and will include both offices and homes. The joint venture project of Ealing Council with developer Vistry includes proposals for an eight storey building providing new civic offices, customer service facilities, and a library. Last week, Ealing Council's planning committee approved the plan despite receiving more than 2,000 objections. That's quite a lot. A letter penned to the London mayor from campaign group Save Ealing's centre suggested several reasons for blocking the development, including alleged conflicts of interest, a failure to consider the impacts of COVID-19 on how people live and work, and questions over the financial viability assessment. The letter goes on to criticise the suitability of a tall residential tower for the site on Uxbridge Road, adding that the proposed tower dominates the surrounding residential area in an overbearing way, causing a substantial loss of natural light, and fails to respect heritage assets in the area. So, Amanda, what's this all about? Why is this such a fiercely contested development, which is also gaining so much media attention?
0: I mean, yeah, that point about um, the question over the kind of housing that we should be building post-COVID. I mean, are we really going to carry on building small flats with no outdoor space? So that's kind of, that's an interesting one in relation to this. Then there's the height. I mean, it's 26 storeys. I mean, that's a very tall building, um, and then th- this whole business of or, or the, the fact that it's in um, one of the outer boroughs um, where, you know, where the pressure is on to to take more housing um, by the mayor because they haven't over the years. I mean, inner London's taken it all in a in a London where there's more uh, which is more uh, labour run councils. I mean, I know Ealing is labour run, actually, but but inner London has taken more housing where there's actually less space because they're run by Labour councils. Um, So you know, that have an interest in building um, affordable homes. So so it's a kind of story for our times. And plus, there's obviously the local elections coming up on the May the 6th. And you feel that, that the thing is being, this application is being hurried through with all these questions left unanswered.
1: One of the things that's kind of key to the story uh is the design of it itself. Now, obviously, you know, Ealing, as we've established, it's a, it's a, Popular suburban neighbourhood. People who live there they love it. It's got these uh, Grade t- Grade Two listed church nearby, a Grade Two listed Gothic Revival town hall, all within the orbit of this development site. Um, I mean, is, are the designs themselves do they do they look good enough? Do you think the the campaigners have some merit in what they're saying about it being objectionable and overbearing?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's obviously overbearing because it dominates the area <laughs> and you can see it for miles. Um, I mean, you're not going to get around that. Um, and, it, you know, towers, we've all... I mean, everybody's been saying this for years, but it's, it's true. They need to be in clusters, otherwise they just look wrong. And it's just not a very elegant building.
1: Whereas Patel Taylor are. They, they have done some excellent architecture. Well, they
0: have, yeah. Um, but, you know, on aesthetic grounds, um, you know, if you're going to build something that tall... In this location, the architecture needs to be world class. And I just don't see that this is, I mean, it's not even kind of national class.
1: Yeah, it doesn't really scream Ealing, especially the building being there before was quite a distinctive one as well. But I mean, look, a lot of people will be listening and a lot of people will actually look at those plans and think, oh, you know, I've seen similar stuff like that built around near me and I didn't like it and I made a noise, but it still went ahead and got built. Yeah, why is Ealing so special? Why is Ealing getting all this media coverage? Um, And why is it that there's a small chance this thing might actually get redesigned or changed in some way?
0: I don't think Ealing is special. I mean, there's obviously councils that are much less picky, um, but there are some councils where it's frankly, it's really difficult to get stuff through. And, you know, I think there's this other whole thing that, you know, you'd have to really know the ins and outs of this project which I'm afraid I don't but has Ealing actually identified this site for a tall building is it in the local plan you know and if it was in the local plan then then people presumably have had opportunity to object to it you know before it arrived as an application but it's just I think if I lived in Ealing in one of those nice streets, you know, with my big garden and my barbecue, and I suddenly looked up and I saw that, I'd be absolutely furious.
1: And just for a moment, just to think about the actual Percival House, the building that's there right now. I mean, is there an argument to say that maybe Ealing Council should possibly look at retrofitting this thing rather than just demolishing it to make way for a new complex? That Maybe that approach would be a bit more in keeping with the, the present situation we're in with the climate crisis Um, and also the campaigning that's going on. For example, the AJ Retro First campaign, which is trying to push this as a way forward for sites like this.
0: Well, maybe in an ideal world, you know, but I think you have to be sort of realistic about buildings like this. Um, I mean, I've just seen photos of the building. I mean, it's no great shakes, is it? But no, I think the, the serious point is that councils have no money, So they have to do deals with private developers, otherwise they won't get their affordable homes. Plus, they, you know, they're getting a new civic centre. So they're getting all this, they're getting all this stuff for free because they're doing a deal with Galliford Try.
1: Our fourth and final item relates to a Financial Times article looking to the post-Covid future of the nightclub industry. The entertainment and hospitality industry was one of the first sectors to be shut down by the government a year ago, and many venues haven't reopened their doors for 53 weeks and counting. When the government announced the 1.6 billion pound cultural recovery fund last summer, most nightclubs were ineligible to apply and very few received funding. During the recent lockdown, nightclubs attempted to trade by offering takeaway drinks or virtual gigs, but have achieved on average 5% of their normal revenues. This is being felt particularly among young people for whom the industry tends to employ and to cater for. This is an age group which has been most likely to have lost their jobs uh, and also an age group which is still at least risk from the virus. The government's tentative plan to reopen on the 21st of June still leaves a big question mark over nightclubs, as no one yet knows what restrictions will apply to them and when they can finally open their doors once more. On top of this, it is difficult to know how people will react. For example, this week's reopening of outdoor pubs has seen venues across the city booked out for weeks. But will this same enthusiasm be extended to the nighttime industry, or has a year just been too long for clubbers? So Amanda, what's this all about? Um, Who's making all the noise about this? Certainly when I look on Twitter, I see a lot of people tweeting about the golden days of clubbing in the early 90s. But these aren't necessarily the same people who regularly attend clubs now. Is this really an issue that's um, facing young people in a big way?
0: It's a bit difficult to see how clubs are going to work with face masks and social distancing and track and trace and whatever else the government will come up with to make sure that we never enjoy ourselves ever again. Um but I, I mean I think the London club scene was pretty much finished in London before COVID. Um so I think, you know, we're nostalgic for it. I mean I'm what I'm nostalgic for is, you know, the how parts of, of central London have changed so much and remembering King's Cross when it was all scuzzy and and, and scruffy and nobody really went there except to go to the clubs and in the arches and they're all you know they all closed down and now you've got a big sort of fancy shopping center um and the same happened to the historian charing cross Road, you know which i think people of my generation just kind of go oh do you remember those clubs and do you remember like walking through king's cross at three o'clock in the morning and you know there aren't those kind of places left anymore
1: so just thinking about this this issue from an architectural angle. Now, obviously, we know for a lot of young architects, designing a small nightclub, it was a good gig. So we know there's practitioners who are big in London today, like, for example, Andrew Waugh of War Thistleton or Charles Holland. Um, I can think of David Ajay as well. They cut their teeth designing nightclubs in the early days uh, of their practice, and also nightclubs themselves are often really excellent examples of repurpose spaces. So, for example, in Canada Water, there's Printworks, and that was a former newspaper printing plant. Uh, and you know, there's also boats, there's derelict car parks, there's fire stations, there's even police cells that have been reused and transformed um, into nightclubs. I mean, is London possibly losing one of its greatest spatial innovators, the sort of people that could see the potential of a place like King's Cross, for example, way before the developers arrived, and also provided interesting opportunities for young architects
0: yeah i think that's that's kind of an interesting question i mean there's a there's a local bingo hall down the road for me um but you know it it wouldn't get a late night license so these um these buildings like like the bingo halls and so on I mean that you know they need repurp they need thinking about what to do what what, what we're going to do with them but they're not going to become clubs but I think we're in that interesting time of trying to find uses for buildings that have outlived their purpose like department stores actually you know what a department store would make an amazing club because you don't need daylight the thing about you know, unbelievably, now when you look at King's Cross. But the point about the clubs when they were in the arches is that, I mean, the the, the whole site was in a bit of limbo because they couldn't decide. You know, all about the the um, station and so on. But you get these areas where they're just frozen in time. I mean, developers just can't kind of come and they just can't develop them. So they're like perfect for clubs and perfect for artist studios and perfect for you know all these creative industries. But there, aren't, there isn't much land left in London that isn't so valuable that someone wants to come and build on it.
1: Amanda, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on The Lundown this week. Thank you for joining, and I hope uh, you come along for another recording soon. Uh, where can listeners um, keep up to speed with your writing and your other projects?
0: Yeah, archiboo.com. I sort of put things on there from time to time, um, and Twitter and LinkedIn um and watch this space because we've got some exciting things coming up obviously we've been under lockdown rules like everybody else so we haven't been able to do any events but we've got um a great event coming up quite soon which lots of architects will be interested in
1: brilliant look watch this space and thanks again for coming on the show you've been listening to the lundown a show from open city rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in london if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at @opencitylondon or by using the hashtag London, #lnddwn. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/support and sign up as an Open City friend open city is dedicated to making london a more open accessible and equitable city
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time